Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, our conception of God, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. Philip Larkin's poem, High Windows, begins with a pretty blunt description of the kind of carefree, youthful sex that the sexual revolution enabled. The poem is typically melancholic and ambiguous, though you wouldn't know that from its opening stanza, which equates guilt-free promiscuity with paradise. It's an equation that many people hold today. Indeed, it's probably the default position in our society infinitely more so than Larkin could have imagined. Yes, there are some strange young people who practice chastity or aspire to monogamy, but they're the exception. The norm is a culture of online dating apps, hookups, the endlessly marketized, nipped and tucked female body, and ubiquitous, often violent, pornography. Is this paradise? Louise Perry is a writer, columnist, and campaigner, and her new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, masters a huge amount of evidence that gives a very clear and disturbing answer to that question. Louise, welcome to Reading Our Times. Hello, thank you for having me. Before we launch into the book, I'd like to ask you about your own background, which is highly relevant to your arguments. You spent many years campaigning against sexual violence, haven't you? Tell us how that shaped your thinking. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I still am. So my main campaigning efforts in recent years have been through a group called We Can't Consent to This, which I write about in the book and which listeners will hopefully have come across in the newspapers if we've been doing our job properly, which is a campaign that documents cases where women have been killed or very seriously injured and their attackers have claimed in court that they actually consented to the violence as part of rough sex. And our argument is that the fact that this defence tactic has been used more often and with greater levels of success is demonstrative of the change in the culture, which I write about in the book. And it feeds off as well my own work previously in working in uh, a rape crisis centre. Yes, yes. Having previously also studied women's studies. So I've kind of spent my whole adult life in this area in one form or another. And it's changed your views, hasn't it? You, you say right at the outset, I used to believe in the liberal narrative and then about 50 pages through, I'm a progress apostate, which is a very <laughs> interesting phrase. Tell us how those experiences changed your own mental outlook. So I just used to believe what everyone... I, I mean, the path of least resistance, right, for someone of my background. I grew up in London. I went to... SOAS and then Oxford. I come from a middle-class guardian reading kind of household. So I just sort of believed everything that you you do, if that's your social milieu, right? So I was vaguely liberal about things like BDSM, things like porn and casual sex and, and you know, all the things that I take aim at in the book. Less so on, on prostitution. I was never fully on board with the idea that sex work was the same as any other kind of work. I don't think most people are. But I kind of said the right things and didn't think about it very carefully. And then I think that I I started thinking about it a lot more carefully in my early 20s, although mm. keeping it to myself on the whole. 
And then when I began um, working as a journalist, it was the first time really that I started saying some of these things out loud. Because if you're in an academic context or if you're working in like vast majority of charities, there are various sectors in which you really can't say this stuff without... Really? Yeah, without the expectation of backlash. Journalism actually isn't one of them because actually most of the media is right wing and there are media outlets with every possible viewpoint you can imagine. You can say things for some magazines or newspapers that you couldn't say for anybody else. I am possibly the first to be putting out a book, but there are other feminist friends of mine who are thinking along the same lines, women like Mary Harrington, who writes for Unheard, and he's a great friend. Nina Power, who put out a book last year. Um, who we interviewed oh, did on the you? previous oh, series. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. she's great. Yeah, so I think that there is a sort of new way of thinking brewing. Yeah. And this is my effort at coming at it after so many years of thinking. Well, let's explore this new way. The book is positively brimming with ideas, which is one of the many things I loved about it. I guess at the heart of it lies this idea of sexual disenchantment. Mm-hmm. Really important phrase in the book, sexual disenchantment. Can you explain what you mean by that? It's a term I stole from an American writer called Aaron Sabarium. I feel like I should credit him every time because it, because <laughs> he wrote this fabulous essay. I don't even remember um, Cuties, this Netflix Oh, yes, yeah. pre-teenage pre girls, yeah. is that right? Yeah, really dreadful. It's a, a French film that was shown on Netflix worldwide, which is about, yeah, I mean, supposedly a critique of sort of sexual liberalism, but in fact, fairly indistinguishable from soft child porn. And um, Aaron wrote this fabulous piece about it in which he used the word sexual disenchantment. So anyway, I stole it very... Um, shamelessly from him. So, I mean, the idea is that one of the ideas to come out of the sexual revolution, which has been very influential, but also I think is actually believed by almost nobody. I know one actually operates as if this was true. It's mostly a rhetorical device, but it's a powerful rhetorical device, is the idea that we used to have all of these oppressive ideas about sexuality derived from religion. We're beyond that now. We've let go of all of these useless old ideas. And now we have come to the enlightened view that actually sex is meaningless. There's nothing that sets sex apart from any other type of social interaction that you can imagine. If people want to invest it with meaning, they are welcome to. Consent is important in the sense that it is with, let's say, a financial transaction, you know, some other kind of bloodless, meaningless transaction. But it doesn't have to be invested with meaning. It doesn't have to have any kind of special status. If people do feel that it has some kind of visceral, intangible specialness or even sacredness god forbid so to speak then (laughs) then either that's a a personal peculiarity or it's something they should actually work against and they should be striving to see sex in a much more neutral term i don't think that anyone really actually does that in practice almost no one i think actually everyone operates on the assumption that sex is special and does have a unique status which ought to be protected in some way One example I give in the book is the fact that it's quite common among feminists and other progressives who consider sex work to be work. That's the popular slogan, right? Sex work is work, meaning that selling any kind of sexual service should be regarded in the same way and should be legislated in the same way as any other kind of services. It's, you know, morally neutral. They don't behave like that in their own workplaces, right? Mm. As we found during Me Too, a lot of journalists, I think rightly, take um, sexual impropriety in their own workplaces extremely seriously. Sexual touching compared with other kind of touching is regarded as crucially dissimilar, right? 
sexual harassment versus other kind of harassment also crucially dissimilar you know so in in that workplace sex has a special almost sacred status but not in the brothel Mm, right i think that that inconsistency lays bare the fact that actually in practice no one operates as if sexual disenchantment were true yes and one of the points you make in the book is that it's almost self-defeating argument isn't it because if it is the case that sex is effectively no different from say a financial transaction Mm -hmm. you might as well put rape on the same level as fraud yeah they're both kind of non-consensual or theft that's right and and instinctively we don't do that do we Yeah, yeah yeah one of the things that some second wave feminists like susan brownmiller were completely right to point out is that historically it's been quite common for rape to be conceptualized in archaic legal systems as a form of property crime not committed against the woman herself but committed against her male owners right her father Mm. or her husband and they were completely right to point out the the fact that this was completely like eclipsing the woman and her own interests from the legal system and i think in a way yes sexual disenchantment almost invites us to return to that kind of arrangement where actually if sex has no special status why should rape have a special status Mm. why should sexual harassment have a special status We recognise in law, and also I think we recognise on a social and an emotional level, that that's clearly absurd. It clearly is worse. And I think the reason that it's worse, it just comes down in the end to some very messy and deep-rooted emotional responses, which are just part and parcel of being a human being, Mm. and which are quite hard to rationalise. Yes. But that doesn't make them untrue or somehow unreal. Yes, Yes. There are other underlying ideas that are really central to your argument. And one of them, or if you like a a kind of a pair of them that come together, is the idea that men and women are different, Mm -hmm. both physically and psychologically. And crucially, that they're also different in their sociosexuality. And that's another really important phrase in the book, sociosexuality. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? So sociosexuality is a term that psychologists use. But what it means essentially is your desire for sexual variety. It's not quite the same thing as your sex drive. It's basically how quickly you want to hop into bed with someone, how interested you are in having casual sex and having lots of sexual partners and stuff. And I don't think anyone listening will be surprised to discover that men on average are higher (laughs) in sociosexuality than women and that this holds true worldwide. Um, It's also somewhat mediated by age, you know, so teenage boys and men in their 20s are obviously... Um, mm. most likely to be behind sociosexuality and so on. But the gap between men and women is, is quite clear. One explanation for this gap is that it is driven by the way that we're socialised and particularly the way that women are uh, shamed for, for being promiscuous and so on. I think the problem with that argument is that it, are you really going to flip the coin and it comes up heads every single time across every <laughs> single culture. Like it is just such a consistent finding. Yeah. And it does make sense within the evolutionary biology framework where we recognise the fact that pregnancy and childbirth and infant care place vastly greater physical burdens on women than they do on men. And while women can only really have one child a year, I mean, max, men can in theory, you know, reproduce every time they orgasm. So there is clearly more of a pressure on women to be selective about who they are impregnated by than there is on men. Is it more likely that this is just a strange and oppressive social system that has arisen everywhere? Or is this actually a fairly intuitive consequence of of sexual asymmetry? Mm. I think it's the latter. 
This plays into a wider, fascinating debate, doesn't it, which in you know, most simplistic terms is the nature-nurture debate. Mm. And the um, reluctance that many people have today to apportion anything to nature... It's got to be culture, it's got to be nurture, because it's got to be malleable, mm -hmm. it's got to be manipulable according to our will. Mm -hmm. And to say, actually, there are inherent nature or natures within us, because you're not determinist in any way, but you're saying there are norms mm. to our physical, psychological, socio-sexual outlook on life. There are groups of people that find that inherently threatening, don't they? Yeah, the word that has been used by some of my critics to describe my thesis is defeatist. On the nature-nurture question, I think it's nature and nurture. And I think that anyone who doesn't think that is a dogmatist, right? Like, yeah. it's clearly both. But some of my critics who are much harder on the nurture side, potentially even 100% on the nurture side, they regard my view as defeatist because mm. it does foreclose the possibility of human perfectibility. Mm. The argument that I'm making basically is that there is lots of good evidence to suggest that there are certain important differences between men and women, that there are certain both absolute and average differences. And moreover, that some of the bad behaviour that we see in men in particular, but also in women, is partly due to our evolutionary history. Mm. And that the solution to this, unfortunately, is not going to be to, you know, erase that history entirely and to expunge all darkness from the human heart, right? It's, it's to channel people as far as possible in positive directions and that we can do that through certain not always and you know it is prone to failure but that there are certain social institutions and certain norms and laws which can make things better and i don't think that our current sexual culture is doing that because i think our current sexual culture prioritizes freedom over any other virtue yes and it is really important just to mention as a caveat here that recognising the propensity that men and women have to different forms of sociosexual behaviour isn't deterministic. I mean, there's a very interesting point you make in the book about how men's sociosexuality is also more flexible yeah. than women, if you like, and there are yeah. the cads and dads. So it's not as if, because you're a man, therefore you're automatically going to find yourself at the promiscuous end of the sociosexual scale, is it? Yeah, yeah. So one of the, the good pieces of evidence in favour of the fact that men and women do differ in sociosexuality is looking at average behaviour in lesbian and gay communities, where lesbians are so much lower on the sociosexual scale in all sorts of ways, and, that's, and that comes out in the culture. There's actually loads of survey data on gay men's sexuality, because it's like a source of interest for public health officials. And um, what's amazing is the range. Like, there are men who are super, super promiscuous, but they're a minority. There are also loads of gay men who just basically behave like lesbians, and there are lots mm. of men in the middle. And I think that that is an important thing to take home here, that actually men are really variable, and men are also very subject to context. One very interesting finding is that men's desire to to go out and have have casual sex and to be aggressive and to commit crime and stuff drops when they have a child having a baby at home and moreover being involved in the care of that baby drops men's testosterone levels which therefore drops all sorts of other associated kind of masculine behavior so this is this is not set in stone 
And essentially what's happened in the last 50 years is that the sexual revolution has remade our kind of normative sexual culture in the image of relatively highly sociosexual men. So you begin the book, don't you, with this really poignant comparison between Hugh Hefner and Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. and how effectively the icons of the sexual revolution, but what's happened is that the Hugh Hefner image or Hugh Hefner worldview that's become dominant, not the female one, the male one. Yeah, I mean, I think the differences between them are striking. And I was just, it was just lucky for my purposes in chapter one that it turns out they were born in the same year and they lived in LA and they were both, because Hugh Hefner bought the crypt next to Marilyn Monroe um, in his final act of creepiness. <laughs> they, um, they, <laughs> that is creepy. Yeah, they, they also, uh, they're also buried in the same place. And yes, they are, they are really beautiful examples of how the sexual revolution's effects differ for men and women because Marilyn Monroe had a pretty miserable life. And like many sex symbols of her era and ours, um, she was a victim of domestic violence and child sexual abuse. And she had a a huge number of backstreet abortions and died while she was still young of substance abuse. Whereas Hefner lived until he was elderly and in many ways had everything he ever wanted in life, including his harem of blonde women right up until the end. One of the many strengths of the book is that you point out that not only does this kind of ideologically make sense, but in its practical outworkings, it's not working. So, for example, you talk about how the generation of women reveling in sexual liberation, but instead you have women who seem to be having unpleasant, crappy sex out of a sense of obligation. And a little later on, you talk about the porn generation having less sex and the sex they're having is worse. It's less intimate, it's less satisfying and less meaningful. So even by its own lights, it's not delivering the goods. No, indeed. I mean, maybe for a small minority of the kind of the Hugh Hefner types who are now able to access a lot of consequence-free sex, which is very nice for them, at least temporarily. I think for everyone else, no, it's absolutely to their detriment. I think that the, the greatest losers of the sexual revolution the group by far who have lost lost out worst are poor women because I think that intersection of the inherent sexual asymmetry, meaning that women are more vulnerable to things like unwanted pregnancy, to the burdens placed on women from hormonal birth control, which can be quite considerable, the risk of violence and so on based on the fact that we are smaller, weaker, the fact that women on average are lower in sociosexuality and less interested in everything that is now on offer from the sexual revolution and more likely to be distressed from unwanted sexual encounters, right, all of this, combined, I think, with poverty and the extent to which things like the porn industry, things like prostitution, it is overwhelmingly poor women who are ending up Mm. stuck in those dreadful industries, right? Mm. I mean, going back to what we were saying at the top about uh, sexual disenchantment, you know, not being applied to, say, the journalist who works for a magazine or a newspaper like me versus the brothel one of the clear differences between those two workplaces is to do with economics isn't it right it's to yes. do with the fact that the women who are ending up in brothels are not there by choice i mean the degree of coercion varies um, whether it's outright trafficking or just to do with poverty and trauma and all the other factors right but that is one of the reasons why sexual harassment in the newspaper office gets treated more seriously than sexual harassment in the brothel. So I think that group of people are obviously the ones who have lost out most. 
I don't think men are actually much happier with this guarded exemption of the likes of Hugh Hefner. There aren't very many of them. Mm. Um, men in general, what we see in the data is um, young men in particular are much more likely to be using a lot of porn, potentially using it in quite a compulsive way, much more likely to be withdrawing from relationships with the opposite sex, be withdrawing from life in general, spending a lot of time online, watching porn and you know and other things too feeling much lonelier and more atomized. I was reading some really grim statistics yesterday just on the proportion of young people now who report having no friends or having very few friends. Really? It's rising, is it? It has, yeah. And that's true for boys and girls. Mm. I mean, I think that the impact of the internet on boys and girls is a bit different. Like, girls are more likely to be distressed by the sort of Instagram image consciousness stuff whereas boys are maybe more likely to get addicted to things like gaming and porn. But I don't think it's good news for either of them. There's also a fair amount of hypocrisy mixed into it. I love the parallel you drew at one point in the book between the 1950s home economics advice for wives in a magazine and the 2015, whenever it was, Cosmo advice to young women about how to keep a man happy in bed. Just just mm-hmm. talk talk us through that and what it says about the hypocrisy of this situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the 1950s one is, is unique by any means, but it was a particularly funny example because it was all about, you know, make sure dinner's on the table when he gets home, make sure everything's clean, whatever, have a ribbon in your hair, which I thought was quite <laughs> quaint. And obviously this is now derided as being terribly antiquated and, you know why on earth should women have to do all of this nonsense in order to to keep their husband happy, yada, yada. But then you see exactly the same thing in modern women's mags. It's just the how to keep your man happy thing is no longer about domesticity, which for all of its unfair burdens on women, that having a happy domestic life does like reap benefits for everyone in the household. (laughs) Like having a warm fed household is like an objectively good thing. Um, Instead of the focus on domesticity, the focus is on the sexuality and mm. o- and often to do with women doing things in the bedroom that they actually don't especially want to do or that they've ins- been inspired to do by porn and which are much more likely to benefit men than women. You know, you look at these two like styles of magazine article, 60 years apart, say, and I think this is the same thing. It's <laughs> it's It's the same thing. It's just that the ideal has changed. As you say, it's a quirky and instructive example. There are other examples in the book that are anything but quirky, but possibly even more instructive. I have to say, my copy of your book has quite a few exclamation marks in the (laughs) margins, and a lot of them are concentrated around a statistic that really left my jaw on the floor, which was Comrade's research from 2019 reporting that over half of 18 to 24-year-old women in the UK reported having been strangled by their partners during sex. Now, that Mm. is a mind-boggling statistic about a mind-boggling practice. And I learned a new word from the book, Dacrophilia, about a fetish of terrified sobbing. This Mm. is really dark, horrible stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that turn in the culture towards a much more aggressive sexual script is I think a really, really clear example of where this is all going wrong. Yeah, that Comrades survey is is shocking, isn't it? It was commissioned by the BBC because they were doing some work with us before we can't consent to this and just, you know, wanting to see exactly how far this is, all of this is being normalised. The argument that we were trying to make is that the 
the really grim court cases you're seeing where women are being murdered and men are saying, well, she consented to it because she loved being strangled, whatever, is the tip of the iceberg, really. And the reason that we're seeing these defences being attempted and the reason we're seeing them succeeding is because there's this much more large scale and very troubling move towards viewing that kind of sex as normal. I'm 30. I know women in my age group who are still dating often encounter this kind of thing from men who they've met on, say, Tinder. But it wasn't normal for my peers. This is even 10 years, I think. Very recently then. I think so, because I think it's to do with the internet. I think that the way that the porn platforms are set up in particular it funnels users towards that kind of content it's on instagram it's like it's everywhere and some of the girls who are being strangled by their partners are very clear about the fact that they're not consenting to it some of them it's a bit more murky because for them this is considered to be a typical sexual experience and is actually sometimes considered to be a sign of their partner's passion and desire for them, I know, which I, I find really disturbing. I mean, I do, I do wonder sometimes whether this sort of desperate desire that girls seem to have to have some sign from their partners, some sign of passion, commitment, love, whatever, they're not getting it in a culture that is all about the casual encounter. And so they're seeking it out in sometimes really perverse ways. So it's a misplaced search for intimacy, isn't it? A vastly misplaced, but a desire for intimacy. Well, let's wheel back to this fascinating question of consent, which says so much or has so much to say about human nature, which is, in a sense, the heart of so many of the interviews we do at Reading Our Times. I want to get to that via the other very interesting and sad set of stories you tell in the book about women who've had careers in porn Mm. and who have giving inverted commas here, consented to being in pornography and to having the thing done in pornography. And then latterly, in memoirs or interviews, make out that basically it was consent only in the very loosest sense of the word. Mm. Actually, at the time, it was considered degrading and upsetting. And they've subsequently begun campaigning against the, the pornography industry, which just underlies how flimsy this notion of consent and how much weight we mistakenly place upon it. Totally, yeah. I mean, it is such a common story for women who've been in porn. I mean, bearing in mind that the vast majority of women and men who appear in porn never become porn stars, right? They never make any real money from it. There is, though, a minority who do become rich and famous as a consequence. And it's very, very common for them to, later down the line, turn against the industry and say that actually they had a dreadful time and... It's full of horrors that no one can easily recognise. And I I tell some of those stories in the book. I mean, one of the examples I write about is uh, Linda Lovelace, who starred in Deep Throat, which is a very iconic porn film of the 1970s. And she later said that she was violently coerced into making porn. So she was, you know, the degree of coercion placed on her was very extreme. Someone like Jenna Jameson, though, she's who was a porn star of the 90s, she's she's trodden the same path. She doesn't say that she was violently coerced into it, but she does say that actually it was a it was a horrible experience and she's now campaigning against MindGeek, which is the, the company that owns a lot of the major porn platforms mm. worldwide. And I think one of the things to remember, particularly about the online porn, is that you can't get it back, right? Once it's out there. I mean, even if you can be absolutely certain that someone was definitely consenting at the time of the filming, you can't be certain that they're still consenting for it being continuing to be available. Um, one of the things that Linda Lovelace said 
many years after Deep Throat was produced is that people who are watching it are watching her being raped. Mm. And it's still available even well after her death. And, you know, I've sometimes had people respond to this criticism by saying, oh, well, that's just the nature of signing a contract, isn't it? You know, you sign a contract and then, you know, I've signed a contract, which means that my book is now out in the world. And even if I decided I didn't want it out in the world, people could still read it and purchase it and so on. But that's coming back to the sexual disenchantment thing, which is that it's clearly different. It's clearly different. Having something, people reading your work or or seeing, you know, photographs of you clothed or something are clearly different from people seeing pornographic images of you, which is why we recognise the unique harm of sexual images compared with other yeah. kinds of images. Yeah. There are many problems with sexual disenchantment, but one of them is that I think at the in the end it's it harms women <laughs> yes. terribly. Yeah. In our final few minutes, I want to kind of pull the camera lens back a little bit and look at some of the wider ideas that marble through that this, this whole argument. The recognition that consent isn't enough comes hand in hand with what, you know, for want of a better phrase, is a kind of a moral realism in what you're saying, that there's some things are good and bad, mm-hmm. and our consenting, one way or the other, doesn't change their moral objectivity. Now, that's not a particularly popular view today, least of all when it comes paired with the view that actually there are some human urges and inclinations that are wrong or even wicked. Mm -hmm. We don't like to face up to that. I'm interested to explore your own kind of, as it were, wider philosophical hinterland to the arguments you're making in the book. I wrote the book intentionally um, for a non-academic audience, but I do gesture towards some more academic themes in in parts of it. And you might have picked up, for instance, in the chapter on BDSM when I write about Andy Inokye, I think Solo 45 is his stage name. The reason he came to my attention is because um, he was on trial, accused of raping several women and and various other violent offences, and was convicted, fortunately, which is why I can write about him. And... One of the things that I thought was very telling is that the important pieces of evidence that was used by the police was videos that he'd taken of the assaults. And they all looked exactly the same, right? All the videos. It seemed evident that the women were in distress. So some of the women came to the police spontaneously. Others, the police got in contact with them. And one of these women, they contacted her and asked her if she was willing to contribute to the prosecution. And she said no. I think she gave evidence for the defence in the end because... She said she consented to all of it. And mm. her video looked exactly the same as all the other women's videos. Mm. But she wasn't willing to to say that what he did was non-consensual. And I thought, what if every single woman had felt that way? Just mm. by luck. Would that make what he had done acceptable? And I think that this, 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 it comes down to the conflict between consequentialism and virtue ethics. Do we say that it's wrong because the outcome was that these women were distressed? Or do we say that it's wrong because it is is wrong to desire such things. It's wrong for him to be aroused by terrified sobbing. And it's not something that we should be encouraging within our legal system or, or indeed yeah. within our social norms. And I, that's my strong feeling. And it's a somewhat unfashionable view, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's also one that people intuitively tend to feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in particular, when you're related to somebody in this context. I'm very struck by your final chapter, or it might have been the the concluding chapter, Listen to Your Mother. You quote from the paediatrician Donald Winnicott, there's no such thing as a baby, there's only a baby and someone. And you adapt that, I think, really tellingly, there's no such thing as a person, there's only a person and someone. We're not 
individuals. We're all related to one another. Yeah. And if you see someone behaving non-virtuously to somebody you love and you're attached to, you have a completely different approach to that, don't you? Yeah. Half of this is our kind of relational nature. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're appalled by how someone is behaving towards your daughter, then you ought to be similarly appalled by how, if they behave towards someone who's unrelated to you. I mean, I just think that using the individual as your unit of analysis completely fails to understand the world as it is because people don't actually operate like individuals. We are networked in infinitely complex ways, which means that if you're talking about consent and choice and so on, you can't really understand the choice that, say, Jenna Jameson made in the 1990s to appear in porn unless you understand her context, which means understanding the much broader context in general. And you can't understand a sexual culture except as being greater than the sum of its parts because the nature of sex and indeed any other kind of social interaction is that it is networked. And understanding only on the individual level, which is what liberalism encourages us to do, completely fails to recognise the complexities there. Mm. Last question. You're, you are helpfully concrete in the book and particularly towards the end. I mean, this is a book of a really acute analysis. There's lots of very sobering but important data in there and some pretty deep philosophical ideas too. But commendably, you're concrete as well <laughs> in terms of how one should negotiate the landscape that the sexual revolution has left us with. Just give us a few of your pointers towards the, you know, how to live well here. So I do incorporate bits of advice, particularly directed at young women. It's all at the individual level. I don't include policy prescriptions, really. I have lots of policy ideas, but I think that might be another book. You know, one example, for instance, is that one of the perverse things that I have noticed that is so, so common, even among hugely attractive women, for them to put up with the most terrible behaviour from their sexual partners and for some reason to think that they have no right to say otherwise and to put up with things that they would never encourage someone they love to put up with. This is probably comes down to one of the other very important differences between men and women, which is on agreeableness. The women are much more agreeable than men are on average, which mm. is, I mean, the, the academic way of saying that women are nicer. They tend to put their, the interests of other people first. Which, you know, agreeableness is one of those traits which is good in some ways but also bad in others. As, as with many traits, it has, its, it has its light and shade. And one of the downsides is that women are very often really bad at asserting their own needs. And uh, so one of the pieces of advice I give as a way of trying to bypass that problem is when you're assessing a partner, don't think, will you make a good boyfriend? Think, would you make a good father? Mm. Because women tend to be pretty good at looking out for the interests of our children and, you know, we will defend our children's interests to the death, potentially, whereas we have a tendency to put our own needs second. And yeah. I think that that is one, a, a way of reframing it, you know, not necessarily because you actually want to have children with him, but because that's a much, much better means of assessing a man's virtues. The book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Louise Perry, thank you very much indeed for thank speaking so to much. Reading Our Times. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Next week, I'll be speaking to Marianne Wolfe about her book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Never before have we had the level of distraction. Never before have we had our children, our youngest children, having their attention hyper-stimulated. You've been listening to Reading Our Times, 
from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.